Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Well, we, uh, as I mentioned before, we have several people getting baptized uh, at the end of our search day. I'm really excited about that. Uh, They are going to be leaving at some point during the sermon, so don't think it's a staged walkout. Uh, When we get to that point, they'll just kind of quietly slip out, okay? It it, uh, it won't be in a, in a, uh, a movement of defiance. Well, our scripture reading for today comes from the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, Luke 13, and we'll begin reading in verse 31, Uh, Luke 13, beginning in 31, and we'll read down to verse 35. Uh, Of course, these words come to us, they're written down uh, as an account uh, that the gospel writer Luke is giving. But they're more than that. They were, they were written under the inspiration, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And, and therefore, they, they don't just come to us as history. They, they come to us as something that's living, that's alive. They come to us as the Word of Christ. So let's hear together the Word of Christ, if you'll listen along as I read aloud. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, him being Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away. From Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, throughout this series, we've been thinking about Jesus's interaction with people that the world despised, uh, with, with people that were not valued by the world. And he showed them just incredible value. And uh, he had these amazingly compassionate interactions with them. But today's a little different. It's not Jesus's interaction uh, with an individual. In fact, it's Jesus's interaction with a whole city, and not just a whole city, a city that represents an entire nation of people an entire people group, if you will, the the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. And in this passage, we we learn a lot about the gospel. Three things in particular I want to look at with you today. We we learn about who Jesus is. It's a great revelation of, of who he is. We learn in a very deep way what he has come to do. And the last thing I want to look at is what does it really mean to see him, to acknowledge him, to come under him? So let's begin with who Jesus is. This is an interesting passage for a lot of reasons. Uh, One of the reasons that it's interesting is even how it begins. Uh, If you were here last week, I talked about the rivalry between the Pharisees and Jesus, this tension that existed between the Pharisees and Jesus. But this passage doesn't begin like that. In fact, the passage begins with the Pharisees giving Jesus 
uh, a warning. This is very strange. In fact, a lot of different commentators say a lot of different things uh, about this. Why were, what were they up to? Uh, was, this, was this false? Were they just trying to get rid of Jesus and giving him this false warning? Or was this a friendly warning? I think if you look at the passage, it seems to be friendly. Jesus doesn't rebuke them. And it's kind of clear here that the, the, the enemy, they, the reason they kind of come together is because they had, in some sense, a common enemy here, Herod, the enemy that Jesus calls the fox. Now, this is a helpful description, if you, just to give you a little kind of first century history lesson. In Israel at that time, uh, it was being ruled by this family. Uh, the, the generation before was being ruled by a guy named Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was this, this powerful governor, if you will, that, that ruled over the, the, what, what we know is kind of modern day Israel as a part of the Roman Empire. And Herod really had come from nothing. He was a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of guy, and he had worked his way into this incredible position of power. But to do so, he had, he'd totally sold out. He totally sold his soul to the Romans, if you will. And he was willing to do whatever they would tell him to do. He was turning on his own people. He was going against the Hebrew Scriptures uh, in order to make the Romans happy. But Herod was an interesting character because he also kind of knew how to make his own people very happy. Uh, if you go to Israel with me in, uh, in April, uh, you will see the, the remnants of Herod the Great. And, and, and because of all these great things that he did, he was known as Herod the Great. I think we have you know, a picture of the Temple Mount that obviously is still there right in the heart of Jerusalem. This huge, massive Temple Mount uh, was the reconstruction of the temple by Herod. And it takes up really a quarter of all the city of Jerusalem. Herod built cities all over Israel. He was truly this great and powerful leader, but, when, and, and, but he was also an evil guy. This, this is the same Herod who was the king when Jesus was born. If you remember the story, the wise men come to him, and, and upon hearing that this new king had been born, Herod kills all of the babies. This likening him to Pharaoh that we see in the scripture. He kills all the, Pharaoh, all the babies two years of age uh, and younger. But then, of course, Herod died. And, and he gave the kingdom over to his children. Now, everything that we know about Herod's children, they weren't as shrewd as, as Herod was. It was kind of like he was the guy that grew up in poverty and had to pull himself up by his bootstraps. They were the spoiled kids that grew up with everything, and they really didn't know how to do anything. But there was one among the, the children that was kind of shrewd, just as evil as his father, maybe even more so, but kind of shrewd, and it was this Herod, and this is Herod Antipas. Now, this Herod was kind of notorious throughout Israel because he had stolen his own brother's wife. So talk about a scandal. Talk about, you know, something that was newsworthy in Israel at this time. Talk about hatred. Talk about cruelty. Talk about selfishness. This is this Herod. This is this fox, this, this cunning, deceiving kind of guy is what Jesus is saying. And, and, and also the, the word fox in the Hebrew language was, was meant to be insignificant. Basically, Jesus is saying, that, you know, the only reason he has what he has is because his father has given it to him. This is this fox, this Herod. The same Herod had also put Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, uh, to death by beheading him. And now, of course, it stands to reason, Jesus being a threat to his reign, Jesus being a threat to his authority, he wants to kill Jesus as well. And amazingly, these Pharisees 
are warning him. And, and how does Jesus respond? Basically, to interpret what he is saying here, he's saying, look, I'm going to go about my business. Herod doesn't bother me. I have a mission that's greater than Herod. I'm going to go about my, uh, my business. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And in fact, I have to go to Jerusalem because that's where all the prophets die. Now, this is very important. It's very important to remember that this story of Jesus and the story particularly of his death and resurrection can never be isolated. It's not isolated. It's a part of something so much bigger. It's a part of something so much bigger that God is doing in the Gospels. It's a part of something so much bigger that God has been doing from the very beginning of time. Jesus is the fulfillment of something. It's not as if this is like a new right turn in the revelation of God. No, this is, this is something that God had been leading the world to. And from the death and resurrection of Jesus, God continues to renew and continues to redeem. In fact, this here today... You know, even this little mark, here we are, very far from Jerusalem, here in Atlanta, Georgia, it is a statement of the kingdom that you are here and that you are worshiping. This, this is, we are a part of a story here. It's not about one isolated event. It's a part of something that has been going on from the very beginning of time. Even when Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God, God from that moment said that Eve would have an offspring that would undo this thing, that would crush the head of the serpent, that would undo the evil that they had fallen into. And, and then from there, God began to deal with a man named Abraham that God made a great promise to. He said, I'm going to give you and your inheritance all of this land, and, and, and you will be a blessing to every nation on earth. And that the offspring of Abraham grew into a kingdom and the great king of that country, the King David, God promised there will be a, a ruler in your line forever and forever and forever. And all through this, God is working out this plan of redemption. But the plan seemed to get off course when after the reign of David, the kingdom split, the people of Israel and Judah fell into sin. And then, of course, from 586 onward, no one, no descendant of Abraham, no nation of Israel was an independent nation. It was, it was under the reign of the Persians and under the Babylonians and under the Greeks and now under the Romans. But of course, in the process of, of this kingdom falling apart, there were prophets in Israel and the prophets began to speak and they began to speak of a coming Messiah, of someone who would free the people from the oppression and restore their glory and restore their kingdom. This Messiah, this Mashiach, this, this one who would come and make everything right and whole again. Even more interesting, though, is that around the time of Christ, there were other messianic figures. This, this idea of Messiah, it was so pregnant at this time. People had so much hope that a Messiah would come and free them from the Roman reign that, that, that there was an expectation of Messiah among the people. So, so Jesus is not alone in people who claimed this kind of messianic authority. In fact, there were several figures around the time of Christ that, that claimed to be uh, this kind of Messiah kind of figure. And most of them had a lot more influence than Jesus ever had. There was another one from Galilee named Judah the Galilean, Judas the Galilean. And Judas the Galilean was in good with the Pharisees. He was in good with the Sanhedrin. And he was seeking to restore Israel and to free them from Roman oppression. 
and he had great authority, and a lot of people believed, all the Pharisees, all the Sanhedrin, all of the Sadducees, they started to believe, this must be the one. This is the one that the prophets spoke of, and he started a revolt against the Romans. He started a group that continued on, and you even read about it in the New Testament, called the Zealots, that were zealous against this Roman oppression and against this Roman power. But you know what happened to Judas the Galilean? The Romans got him. <laughs> they killed him. And the movement ended. There was messianic figures after Jesus. Uh, one of the most famous one was this guy named Simon Bar Kokhba. Simon Bar Kokhba, in the same kind of way, he claimed that he was the new king of Israel. In fact, they printed new money. They even started a new calendar. He even restored the national language from Aramaic back to Hebrew. He made the people uh, speak Hebrew again. The kingdom is here. Simon Bar Kokhba, Simon son of the star, is that what that, that means? Simon Bar Kokhba has come in this great movement, this, this new uprising. The, the Messiah has come to Israel. And you know what happened to Simon Bar Kokhba? The Romans got him. They killed him and he died and the, the, movement, the movement ended. So I'm saying all of this to say to you, in fact, the book of Acts talks about Judas the Galilean. Uh, there, was a, 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 there was a Pharisee named Gamaliel at that time and he said, look, you know, if we've seen this before. We've seen these Messiah figures before. This is in Acts chapter five. If they're really from God, uh, then we're not going to be able to stop them. But, but before, we had these other guys that obviously weren't from God, and they were easily stopped. So my, my point is all this to say, it, it's, not, it's not strange that Jesus was reading Isaiah 61 and claiming to be the Messiah. It's not strange that Jesus had this messianic following. In fact, that was kind of going on in the day. But there's something in this story that was very strange. You know where Simon Bar Kokhba was killed? You know where the Romans got to him? You know where Judas the Galilean was killed? You know where the Romans got to him? They were in hiding. <laughs> they were in a fortress. They were hiding out because they knew that the Romans wanted to kill them. They had to get away. They didn't want to be killed. They knew that if they were killed, then, the, then their movement would end. Then, then their movement would be squashed and put down. So they were hiding. They were trying to get to places where they wouldn't be killed. What's so interesting about the story of Jesus here is that Jesus comes on the scene and says, I got to go to Jerusalem because that's exactly where they kill the prophets. That's exactly, he doesn't hide He's not intimidated by this warning of the Pharisees. They were probably saying, look, if you're really the Messiah, you need to follow a page from Judas the Galilean script and get out of here. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, no, I know where I'm going and, I, and this is exactly where I have to go because the prophets die in Jerusalem and because I am the prophet of Israel, that is where I must go. Jesus is this Messiah. He's so unexpected. He's so strange. But if... If these people had really been paying attention, they would have seen that it's exactly, it's exactly as it should have gone. Now, I know you might be thinking here, this is all very interesting. And thanks for the history lesson on Simon Bar Kokhba. But what does this have to do with me? I mean, I understand that these people were looking for a Messiah, but I didn't wake up this morning thinking, when's the Messiah going to come? I didn't wake up this morning thinking, man, I hope the great redeemer comes today like these people were doing. I don't, I'm not looking for a Messiah. What does this have to do with me? And to which I would say back to you, of course you're looking for a Messiah. Everyone is looking for a Messiah. Now you don't call it Messiah. 
typically when we're young, we call it something like a successful career. Maybe we think it's marriage. Maybe we think it's children. It's something that will make us feel important. That's what Messiah was for Israel. It was the one that would free them from the oppression. It's the one that would take away all of the things that were the Romans, the Greeks, the Persians, all of these, these people that were oppressing them and finally put them back on the map and make them feel important. And every one of us has that. We have a Messiah. I'm looking for a Messiah. This is gonna make me feel important. If I could just get the promotion, it's gonna make me feel special. It's gonna make me be remembered. And people will know who I am. I'll finally have it. I'll finally have this thing. You may admit it or not, but you woke up this morning thinking about your Messiah. Your Messiah may just not be Jesus. The thing that is going to make you special. The thing that's going to make you important. And the, the tragedy of this life is this. As you go through life, some of you are a little older get this. You go through this life and you see how fleeting your Messiahs really are. I mean, even something as wonderful as kids. You know what kids do? They grow up quickly and move out of the house and never call. And, and if your Messiah is in your kids, you know what you become? You become the annoying parent that always wants them to call. You know, you know what your work does? Your work takes care of you for a good long while, but then you retire. And it, you go back to your work two years after you retire, after doing all of these amazing things. And everybody's like, who are you again? We've got some 25-year-old doing your job now. And he's doing it a lot better. Now that's, that's what, that's what the, all the messiahs of this world do. Maybe you say, well, you know, I am going to retire and I'm going to go travel because that's going to make me feel important. If I could see all of these sites, if I could, you know, if I could uh, cruise on the Mediterranean, then I would feel like I'd made it. And then the trip's over. And all you have are photos. And, and then you're, all of a sudden your phone says it doesn't have any more storage and you have to delete those pictures. <laughs> That's what, that's, what, that's what all of your messiahs do. Maybe you're some, some of y'all are bold enough to even say someday, well, I'm going to write my memoir as if anyone really wants to read it. But <laughs> the point is, is um, there's this old book, it's a children's book called The Giving Tree. And this boy comes to this tree. Y'all have read it, right? Yeah, y'all know. And this boy, you know the story. The boy comes to the tree and he says, give me money. That's going to make me feel important. Give me a house. That's going to make me feel important. The tree gives and gives and gives. Give me a boat so I can sail around and travel. And the boy's never satisfied. The boy's never happy. He's always looking for a Messiah. And so are you. You just may not call him Jesus. This is what Israel was looking for. Someone who would get rid of these Romans, get rid of these Greeks, get rid of these Persians, finally put us back on the map. We're going to be important. They're going to put an end to this struggle and settle everything. And of course, they thought that the Messiah would look like Judah the Galilean, this great warrior who had all of the right official and all the people with him and on his side. They thought he would look like Simon Bar Kokhba, but of course, Jesus comes here and saying, no, I'm not like those messiahs. I'm the Messiah who really is the Messiah, who really is the prophet of God. And, and, and because of that, I have to go to Jerusalem because that's where the prophets go to die. And this leads us to point number two. We've looked at who Jesus is, but secondly, what did Jesus come to do? What did Jesus come to do? You see, Jerusalem was more than just the city where the prophets went to die. It was also a city where sheep went to die. There's an amazing comparison, um, uh, or rather amazing compassion, rather, that Jesus shows for 
Jerusalem here. I mean, just look at the words. Oh, Jerusalem. You hear that? Oh, Jerusalem. I would have gathered you. I, I would have cared for you. He says something very interesting here. This is a fascinating piece of scripture. He says, I would have gathered you. I would have cared for you as a hen cares for her brood. You know, Rainer got sick last week. I mean, really pretty sick. He had this like really croupy cough. He had really, he had trouble breathing. I mean, the kind of sick where you're worried about him, right? You know, and, and we just, and so, you know, he, he was actually sleeping. I got kicked out and Paige put me in the guest room and Rainer got my spot in the bed. And of course, I'm trying to care for him. I'm trying to take care of him. But when Paige wasn't around, he just wanted his mom. You know, I remember this one time he was just crying and he just, I want my mama. And I was trying to care for him. He goes, don't talk to me. I, <laughs> I want my mama. And, and, and for those of you who are dads, you get it. I mean, you can be a great dad. And Rainer normally, you know, thinks I'm pretty cool and I'm not just trying to make myself feel good right now. But when he's sick, there's a kind of motherly love that he wants, a kind of motherly protection that he wanted. And, and you know this, there's kind of a motherly care that is beautiful and right and good. And, and look what Jesus is saying here. Jesus, who loves Jerusalem so deeply, he says, I would have gathered you as a hen. He's displaying this deep, even kind of, the best way to describe it is a motherly care for Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, people of Jerusalem, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her brood underneath her wings. N.T. Wright, uh, I heard him tell this story one time. He was, he was a child in England, and he was staying at a farm. And uh, while he was staying there, he didn't live there, but while he was staying there, one night, the farm, the, one of the barns at the farm caught fire and burned and it just happened overnight, and he says, I remember standing out there watching the flames. The next day, the fire had gone out, and they went around looking for, looking through the rubble, looking through the damage. And it was a bad fire, and it had destroyed most of the barn, and it has killed a lot of the animals in the farm. But as they were walking along, they found a hen who was dead, who had clearly been burned. But underneath this hen, they found five living chicks. And this hen had covered the brood with her wings and they were saved. And this is what Jesus is saying to Jerusalem. This kind of self-sacrificing, motherly love for Jerusalem. And then as you study the Gospel of Luke, this is the clearest statement so far where Jesus is really explaining what he is really up to. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem because that's the city where the prophets die, but he also had to go to Jerusalem because that's the city where the lambs die. The Old Testament Messiah that we read about was the anointed one. He was the king, but we also read that the Messiah would come and be the suffering servant Somehow this Messiah, when he came, would save people by suffering for them. Of course, we read about this famously in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And and what the prophet was saying is that the Messiah, when he comes, will be like a hen that protects her brood, who covers her brood even when the fire comes. But this, this passage is saying that the Messiah is more than just a hen. It's saying that he's also the sheep. We are the sheep that have gone astray And God has laid on this sheep, on this lamb, the iniquity of us all. And the people should have understood this. Because at this time in Israel, year after year after year after year, in Jerusalem, where the lambs go to die, in the temple, the lambs were sacrificed for the sin of the people. The innocent, unblemished lamb was taken to the holy place of God, and the priest placing his hands on the lamb as a symbol of the sin of the people being placed on this lamb, then killed the lamb. The sin had been transferred, and with the lamb's death, the sin died also. The lamb faced the death that they deserved. The lamb faced the sin that they deserved. And under the blood of the lamb, this goes back even to Passover, they were safe. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem because he was a prophet. He was the one who spoke on behalf of God, and Jerusalem is where the prophets died, but he had to go to Jerusalem because he was also a lamb. And Jerusalem is where the lambs go to die, as John the Baptist said of him, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in Jerusalem, he would be the prophet. He would be the lamb that was slain. And by his stripes, church, we can be healed. Now, I know what you're all thinking again. Okay, this is all interesting, but I'm not really into blood sacrifice I've not ever been counting on animal sacrifice. I don't really get into that. I don't really feel like I need some sacrifice to be made for my sins. I I don't really feel like I need a sacrificial system. To which I would reply, well, of course you do. I was listening to an episode of of This American Life uh, a year or two ago, and and Ira Glass, the host on there, was talking about the old song. It, it was made famous by Frank Sinatra, but a lot of people sang it, the old song, My Way. And it's a, it's a song about being tough and standing tall and working hard and doing it my way. And my grandparents, my grandparents' generation, and probably most of your grandparents' generation, some of your parents' generation, uh, my grandparents' generation loved this song, right? You have in your family that loved this song? They love this song. They, they, they love this song. And it, and it really described kind of the generation that, that you know, that my grandparents were, were really a part of. They, they, they did what they had to do, right? They, they got off the farm. You know, both of my grandfathers kind of grew up in, one grew up on a farm, one grew up in a small town. My grandmother grew up on a farm. They got off the farm. They, they moved into the city. They bought a house. They, they were incredibly tough, incredibly diligent. They did things that no generation really before them had done. And they, they did it my way. They got it. Um, this was a generation, you know, I was talking to some, a young person the other day. They had just finished college. I was like, what are your plans now? And they said, well, I just want to be for a little while. Nobody in my grandparents' generation ever said that, right? They never said that. They were diligent. They, they didn't just be ever. They were hardworking. But they were also kind of silent. 
you know, this, this generation was not known for vulnerability. You know, one of my grandfathers died before I was born. The other one died when I was 10 years old. I really have no idea who either of my grandparents are. The one that died when I was 10, I never really remember having conversations with. And even my grandmother, who died when I was probably 28, who was around me like my whole life. I mean, she was always there. She came to every sports game. She came to every little school activity that I did. She was always around me. But I really, I mean, if I had to say, like, I don't really know that much about her. I, I tried to ask her questions, but it just, I just never got that far. That's just not the kind of person that she was. You know, when I was a freshman at Auburn, people asked the question, what are you passionate about, right? That was a question people asked. What, what are you passionate about? I remember asking that to my grandmother one time. She had no tools by which she could answer that question. You know, what am I passionate about? The question made no sense to her. This is this generation, the GI generation, the silent generation, but they love this song, My Way. And, and it's not a song of vulnerability. There's one line in the song. And if you know the song, it's the one line that you remember above all the other lines in the song. Some of y'all may guess what I'm saying. It's, it's this one. It says, regrets I've had a few, right? Regrets I've had a few. And people know this song. It's like the one moment in this whole big bravado, tough, I stood tall, I did everything. It's this one moment of vulnerability in the song. But then, of course, right after that in the song, Frank Sinatra says, but then again, too few to mention. You know what I'm talking about? Like, he's like, I regrets I've had a few, but I don't even need to mention those. This, this generation loved this song. It was a tough generation. It wasn't a vulnerable generation. They had done it their way. But it's funny, I, I, um, I pastored for five years from the time I was 26 to the time I was 31. I pastored the First Baptist Church of Covington, Georgia. And during my time there, um, I did the funerals of a lot of people that were in my grandmother's generation. It was an older church. And there was a lot of people that I got to talk to when they were in the hospital or right before they were going to die. I mean, they were facing death within days, okay? Right before they died. Deathbed conversations. And you know what they talked about? They would say, I tried to be a good dad but I don't think I was, or I, I really failed. I should have done this better. You know, I should have been a better church member, Pastor. You know, I, I really should have spent more of my time doing this for the Lord. You know, Pastor, I, I never felt good about the way I did this or that. This is the conversations we're having. They're sharing with me their regrets, and they're not too few to mention. These were the things that they wanted to talk to me about right before they were about to die. And I couldn't get this. I mean, I was a kid, you know? I remember talking to another pastor. I was like, I'm 28 years old. Why are they talking to me about these things? And another pastor, I remember one time, I was, I was really, I didn't know how to be a pastor. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. And I was just kind of nod my head. And, and he said, and this other pastor explained to me, he said, don't you get it, Jason? You're a pastor, and they have these burdens that they've been carrying, and now they're about to die, and they need someone else to carry them. They need, they need to pass off the burden to someone, and they don't want to pass it off to their kids, and they don't want to pass it off to you know, their friends, so they're passing it off to you. They think you're in good with God. They're going to pass it off to you. 
And it was very wise, and I think that's exactly what's happening. You see, here's the truth, guys. All of us, we have regrets. We know we're not perfect. We know we haven't lived according to God's design. We know we haven't lived the way we were supposed to. We haven't done what we were supposed to. We haven't, we haven't followed the code the way we were supposed to. Whatever code it is that you think you're living by, we all carry these regrets around. And, and you know, most of us, here's our posture. We say, well, I'll make it up. I'll do better. I'll try harder. I'll get better. But then you die. You face your death, and there's no more time. Don't you see? You need a lamb. You need someone that you can pass your regrets off to. And the 28-year-old pastor is not going to do you any good. The lamb that you need is the lamb that can really take away your sin, that can really heal you, that can really cleanse you. You need to be able to transfer your sin to someone, and this is exactly what Jesus does. This is the servant Messiah that has come to be the sacrifice for you, that's come to take on all of your burdens, all your cares, all your regrets, all your sin, and to make you cleansed and to heal you, to relieve you from that. He is the lamb that takes your burden. He's the hen that covers you. And he cares for you. And he's willing to do this for you if you just trust in him. So we've looked at who Jesus is and what he's come to do. But last, and this is important, how do you see him? Or what does it mean to see him? Is it Jerusalem was the brood that Jesus came to cover? And they would not They refused him. He wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. They didn't want a hen. They didn't want a lamb. They they, they wanted the victor. They wanted the, the triumph because here's the deal. You know what they thought? They thought, none of this is our problem. It's everyone else's problem. We gotta get the Romans out of the way. We gotta get these other people out of the way and then we'll be victorious. So how do you see him? Do you have a problem? (laughs) Are you in need of a hen? Are you in need of a lamb? Are you in need of a shelter? Or is it everybody else's problems? And as long as it's everybody else's problem, you'll never see him. You'll never be covered by him. And there's real consequence for that. The real consequence here says the city is forsaken. The city is forsaken. And, And has Jerusalem, in a very literal way, not been forsaken? It's divided. It's tenuous. There's real consequence for not seeing Jesus rightly. And so how have you seen Jesus? Have you seen him as the brood that needs a shelter? Have you seen him as the one with regret that needs a lamb? Have you trusted in him like that, the one that comes to you covering you, sacrificing himself for you? Have you seen him rightly? Have you seen him according to his word? Have you seen him as he says that he is? And as we think about that, I just want to give us two things to think about, and then we'll be done. First, this week, I really do want you to go out and engage in these projects in the city that we have in your bulletin here, to go out and serve this city, to have the same kind of compassion for Atlanta that Jesus has for Jerusalem, to have the same kind of heartbreak for this city that Jesus has for cities. And here's the deal. The city may not like it. (laughs) The city may reject it. You know, a lot of people say, oh, I've tried that. I've tried doing good things, and they didn't appreciate it. Well, yeah, okay, of course. They didn't appreciate Jesus either. Jerusalem killed him. They stoned the prophets. The city may hate you. It may reject you. 
But do you have the same kind of mercy? If you are a follower of Christ, you have the same kind of mercy toward the city that Jesus has toward the city. And then the second thing that I want us to think about as we close, second practical thing, is we're actually about to go partake in something. We're about to go hear some stories of people that today, in just a moment, are gonna be baptized. And I want you to hear, as you think about all this, I want you to hear something in their story. You know why you get baptized? You get baptized because you get helpless. And you realize you need a savior. You realize you need to be rescued. You get baptized for the same reason that the brood runs under the wings of the hen because you realize that you need a rescuer. You realize you can't do it by yourself. The, the picture of baptism, water throughout the Bible is synonymous with judgment. Think of the flood. Think of the Egyptians uh, being destroyed by the Red Sea. Think of Jonah uh, running from God and being caught in the, the sea and the storm, being thrown into the sea, being thrown into the judgment of God. That's what water is throughout the Bible. And when you're baptized, it's a confession of, it's a confession of need. You're going under the water. You're saying, you know, I, I deserve this. I deserve, this is, if I were to stand before God right now, the, the judgment of God flooding over you is what I deserve. And when you're under that water, I mean, think about it, how beautiful a picture it is. When you're on your back, underwater, there are a few more vulnerable positions. You, you can't, like, get up unless someone pulls you up, unless someone rescues you out. And that's the picture of baptism. These people are gonna share with you stories where they're, what they're gonna be saying to you is I found the hen. I saw Jesus rightly. I found the lamb. I was covered. I was protected. I am safe now in him. And so as you hear their stories, I pray you'd be able to apply this to your story and that you'd rightly see the Lord. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.